The One Hot Minute podcast is brought to you by The Warehouse, who believe that saving the planet shouldn't cost the earth. Join them on their journey in making the sustainable affordable. are changing the atmosphere. This is my generation's nuclear-free moment. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. The One Hot Minute Podcast from Stuff's Forever Project. Elizabeth Knox is New Zealand literary royalty. She's written 12 novels, three autobiographical novellas, and a collection of essays. Her first big bestseller was The Vintner's Luck, and her young adult Dream Hunter novels were also major hits. Her most recent novel, The Absolute Book, went viral and landed an American publisher after a rave review on the Slate website. I'm Eloise Gibson, Stuff's Climate Change Editor, and you're listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Here's how it works. In Stuff's online video series, One Hot Minute, We give each guest just 60 seconds to tell their climate change story. And then in this podcast, we dig a bit deeper into what they said in that video. Now, I'm a big Elizabeth Knox fan, but the reason we wanted to get her on this podcast is that over the past few years, she said some really interesting things about climate change. Also, and we're not going to go into too much detail on this because we don't like spoilers any more than you do, there are some really interesting climate change themes running through the Absolute book. I have to admit, getting Elizabeth Knox on the show was a bit of a mission. When we first asked her way back in March, she said yes right away, but coronavirus had other ideas. When things calmed down, we contacted Elizabeth again and she came in to talk to me about why politicians should take fiction writing classes, how climate change messed with her plans for getting a new kitten, and the challenges of growing broad beans when the seasons start getting out of whack. Here's the interview. Elizabeth Knox, welcome to the One Hot Minute podcast. Hi, Eloise. We have just watched you record your One Hot Minute video. And I wanted to ask you a little about that, starting with the very simplest stuff. It sounds like you're having trouble in your veggie garden in Wellington. Your broad bean crop isn't what you hoped. No, no. And I did the thing of putting it in late because it was unseasonably hot. So I thought, all right, you know, I'll be clever and I'll put it in a bit late. And now, of course, it's just raining and raining. So... About half of them have come up, and then some of them look look like somebody's come along with a hairdryer, like a blow dryer, and, and, and caused them to all frizzle up and become gnarled. And yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a bit disappointing. And, and the broccoli, everybody's broccoli isn't working. There are no broccoli heads. Your point, though, it's not just about beans and broccoli, is it? It's that the climate is changing, the world is changing quicker than normal, or as you put it, novelty's not novel anymore. Yes, that's right. It it would be lovely to be able to become a gardener who said, oh, yeah, this was a good year, this was a bad year, and then began to see cycles that repeated themselves over periods of years. But, you know, it's everybody who's trying to grow vegetables, that's the sort of thing that I have conversations about is vegetables or fruit. Um, yeah, they're all bewailing and bemoaning. As you know, we were all set to host you here in our Auckland studio right before the country went into lockdown. We were thrilled to have you as our guest and coronavirus changed everything. 
Is the one hot minute that you just delivered this morning different from what you might have said back in March? It's very close to what I would have said probably because COVID has only made it clearer what's crucial, which is actually dealing with the problems that are just going to run over the top of us if we don't. But what I, w- I think what I was interested in, because it's only one minute, I wanted to have a thought that was a thought about how we think rather than about, you know, trying to trying to do, do something that was demonstrating a, a fact because there are so many, there is so much scientific information out there. There are so many facts. There are so many anecdotes that what I was trying to do was talk about, you know, our alienation from our expectations. And I think that's even clearer with COVID is that we just we don't know what's going to happen next and um, we're kind of mired in uncertainty. You talked about Hong Kong. Was there any particular mm-hmm. significance to that location? No, no, I just, uh, I was, it was one of those wonderful things where you're by yourself at an odd time of night because you come in on a plane and you need something to eat and it's just the enchantedness of finding yourself somewhere different by yourself and those circumstances and, and everything's different, you know, the the, the plants, the the steamy atmosphere. I mean, that steamy heat, it's astonishing when you're in New Zealand. You just don't see the steam in the air if you go to Singapore and it's nighttime or, or Hong Kong in this case. So, no, there was nothing special about Hong Kong, but I was aware that, you know, Hong Kong's itself is turning into a different place. How much time do you spend thinking about climate change? Actually, a hell of a lot. Yeah, I make my decisions about various things based on climate change. I'm planning to get new cats, and I'm going, cats, climate change, Wellington birds, my mental health, my black clothes, (laughs) all these considerations. You're weighing up all of the weighty issues. Yeah, the weighty issues. And actually, you know, on the personal level, the black, too many black clothes and the kind of cats you want, uh, you know, it looms remarkably large. What uh, what other aspects of your life does it creep into, do you find? Uh, well, I'm, well, well my, my expectations about you get to my age and you have an adult child, you, you you cannot but help but have a few feelings on the subjects of grandchildren because basically everybody just has children so they have grandchildren. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. I don't uh, know. My so, mother is nodding vigorously through the airwaves to us right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, but the thing is about that is that I sort of feel that, um, you know, I – I don't feel that it's not even that I feel whether I've got a right for for my feelings or not. It's just like I don't feel strongly that I do need grandchildren because the world is so uncertain that, you know, you don't know whether you're kind of committing these unknown vulnerables to some real difficult times. And uh, and the the pain of being a parent if there were real difficult times, I'm, I don't think I would want to put my own child through that. So, I mean, yeah, I have, I have these thoughts in the dark of the night. Do you share them with your son? Yeah, on and off. Yep. 
But it's usually we start laughing about it because, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, mum, sure, mum, you're not thinking about grandchildren, you know. You know, I'm only occasionally, mostly, I think more often about the cats I'm going to get. (laughs) I was interested in what you said about the facts versus uh, you wanting to get behind how people think about this and how they feel. Yes. We, as as journalists, we're used to presenting information to people in, in one way. And I wondered if you thought that artists and writers had a responsibility to get at this another way. Definitely. Yep. I think that our business is, well, I mean, if, if you keep having to feel that you have to make the, make all the arguments that are being made better elsewhere, you're never going to get your book written. So the thing is to actually try to dig down into what you're feeling and what you're thinking and to think about how we think and how we have thought. Um, yeah. Mm. We'll get further into that in a minute. But first, we have a quick climate change quiz. Question number one, does New Zealand have a carbon tax, yes or no? Oh, I know it has a commitment to reducing its carbon, but I actually do not know whether it has a carbon tax. I think I think we really need to look at our tax. Yes, <laughs> that's my answer to that. <laughs> In fact, uh, you're correct. We do have a commitment to reduce our carbon uh, under the Paris Agreement, but the tool for getting there is not a carbon tax. It's the emissions trading scheme. That's right. Second question. Barbara Kingsolver's climate change-themed novel, Flight Behaviour, came out in what year? 2009, 2012, or 2015? I actually don't know. It was 2012. And we, we too did not know that until we tried to find a literary climate-themed question for you. Have you read it, by the way? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> question number three. Wellington is likely to be affected by sea level rise sooner than Auckland. True or false? True, because because of the 1855 earthquake, which opportunistically brought up a whole lot of flat shoreline, we've got a lot of roads that actually run along the shore, a lot of arterial roads. So um, and until we get transmission gully built, we have a bit of a problem. You're correct that it's true, and you've actually added information to the, the, the answer that I was going to give, which is that um, part of the problem with Wellington is it's very small tidal range. So sea level rise, when it boosts coastal flooding that bit higher, there isn't the big tidal buffer that we have in many parts of Auckland. Um, but, of course, you're absolutely right. All of those roads right along the coast, some of them protected mm. by seawalls, some of them not. Wellington has got some interesting times coming. So... Score 1.5 out of 3. That's a perfect 50%. No, that's terrible. So if any of your students are listening, perhaps um, this will be a comforting moment for when they get their their grades back. (laughs) Let's get back to the serious stuff. There is a quote which you retweeted on, on Twitter a while back from the speculative fiction author Ursula Le Guin. And in 2014, uh, she said this, I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. 
I wondered, in the face of climate change, whether you think there is a special role for writers, particularly writers like you, Anne Le Guin, who specialise in creating alternative worlds, to show us the possibilities. I think the habit of creating alternative worlds is a good habit for thinkers to have because we really do need to imagine a future that's very different and is possible and is a good future. And the the authors that by habit do that rather than rely on the common understandings that when people who write realist fiction, they there's a whole lot of things they don't have to do because they've got a world that people agree on. Um, they mightn't agree about it, but they agree that the world works like this. There are these kind of people and that kind of people, and you can expect to encounter this kind of behaviour and these kinds of problems. They've got that to work with, which is great. But the people who make things up have to make things plausible in order for it to work. And it's that exercise of making things plausible that makes you try to think what's possible. And it isn't just a sleight of hand. It isn't just making people believe in the illusion. It's making people feel that a thing has a natural gravity and is somehow possible, possible in some way, even if it's only for the duration of reading the book. That's a skill, I think, that will be a good skill for, well, politicians and policymakers to have. Should all our politicians go to sci-fi writing class, do you think? Well, actually, I do think that will be quite useful. (laughs) I think, yes, it will be a good intellectual challenge anyway. I think inventing things is a very good intellectual challenge for everybody and will keep your mind alive. So it, it would probably be quite good, but I can see that that is pretty fanciful. I don't imagine I'm going to suddenly get all kinds of commissions to train up politicians. There's an election coming up. We'll see if we can get that in a major party's planks. There are some scientists who have calculated that the only way to tackle climate change, in their view, is to literally remake our world, perhaps keep the planet cool by shooting reflective particles into the air, uh, manipulating the clouds, pumping billions of tonnes of CO2 into the ground... Are you a techno-optimist? Well, you know, I'm always prepared for someone to come up with something that really does work. And, And I'm always willing to entertain these things as being part of the picture. But I don't think we can think this is the solution. I think we do need to plant trees and reduce our carbon footprint. I just think it's... There, there really isn't any other way around that. Without wanting to give too much away, uh, there are no spoilers in this podcast, but there's a society in your latest hugely successful novel, The Absolute Book, uh, which I loved, by the way, whose people seem to live the ultimate low-carbon life. Now, I don't know if this is me reading too much into it, but they don't eat red meat, they walk everywhere, they use sailboats, they harness hydropower for their their dwellings. Was that deliberate? Yeah, it's not really hydropower because they don't have electricity. Um, mm. I, I, wa- I wanted to, ro- to to do a beautiful society, a beautiful functional society. Um, but I mean, they, they are they do also rely on uh, magic to keep things clean and so on. So there's made up things. But the point of making 
a totally desirable society where everybody who's reading it is supposed to think, I want to go there. I, I want to live like that. I want to walk those roads. I, I want to, you know, be at those little encampments with the fruit trees and the fishing traps and so forth. But that their society is founded on the sacrifice of other people. You know, that there's a sort of a contractual base to it which is pretty much like when people start touting the great things about 21st century capitalism or late 20th century, 21st century capitalism about how there's so much more electricity and people have cell phones and so on. You know, they they don't count the cost, like families broken up and air pollution and terrible poverty and squalor of the poorest people who mightn't have been that poor, you know, 100 years ago the quality of their poverty would have been different. They would have at least been able to breathe the air. Writers are, are very good at imagining different futures and different ways of living, but there are also writers such as Zadie Smith who've tried to articulate the grief they feel right now about seeing their familiar places change and knowing what's to come uh, in the world that we do live in. Thinking back to your broad beans and about Wellington where you live, what's climate change doing to your own state of mind or your own emotions? Um, There's a lot of anticipatory grief, which I think we all feel if we're thinking about it at all. I would like to be able to leave my life knowing that something constructive was being done. And I would like to leave my life knowing that human beings weren't always just putting themselves first, that they, you know, they should be thinking of everything else that we share the planet with. So whenever I see signs of that, I begin to feel hopeful, but fear and grief are just natural. Uh, They're natural things to be feeling the way that, you know, the things that are facing us and also the sort of turmoil and mismanagement and and all the nonsense that's going on. <laughs> just, we could get, get rid of these authoritarian maniacs everywhere and just pull together will be really great. Do you see signs of people doing those hopeful things? I, th- I think when I see kind of protesters on the streets in the States, that makes me very hopeful. How resolute they are makes me really hopeful too, that they're just going to get angrier and angrier and they're going to get more and more resolute and they are not going to go back into their houses. There are a lot of young people out there who have had it up to their back teeth with various things. Are you someone who would get out with a placard? Oh, God, I've been getting out with placards all my life, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think my first protest was when I was 15, so... 1974, it was the Walls Amendment of the Homosexual Law Reform Act, which was only reformed 11 years later. When I was in my 20s, there was a lot of socialising on protests that you you either went and sat in shabby pubs that you could afford to, the ones with the sticky carpet, or you went out and you walked alongside your friends who were carrying some magnificent Deborah Buston uh what were they? Those big paper mache sculptures that were in the nuclear free marches. So yes, I 
don't go on so many protests now because after a certain point you go, no, it's in your hands, oh, those those of you who can stand around for hours without getting really sore feet. Now you can just go on podcasts and talk about it. How old are you and when did climate change become a thing for you personally? I'm 61 and I've been aware of climate change since the 1970s. That, along with a whole lot of other people who are paying attention, I only began to start thinking about it urgently, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago perhaps. And then, of course, it all seemed to accelerate. And for me this year, it was the fires in Australia. Of course, my sister's an Australian citizen and she's also works alongside the Rural Volunteer Fire Service. So she was in the thick of it, really. And it just seemed like an apocalypse. So when I made my keynote address to the Wellington Festival that was very much about climate change, that was the thing that was topmost in my mind, was Australia burning. Do you recall where you were when you saw the sky turn that orange colour? First, we got the filtered smoke when I was in Golden Bay in November, but then it was was those terrible days in around New Year, um, back in Wellington, and uh, yeah, we got the tangerine-coloured sunlight coming through the smoke. Does this hyper-awareness that you have now affect how you live? I mean, how often do you have to fly to promote a book in normal, non-COVID times? Oh, well, my books are so few and far between that every, every time I have one, the whole picture's changed, like what's possible and how many gigs I get and so on. I had a lot of gigs um, and I was thoroughly committed to doing some flying, but I wasn't going to fly. I mean, I had a trip to Europe planned, but I wasn't going to fly there and fly back. I was going to fly and stay for weeks and weeks, which I figured was one way around that problem. You pay the offset, carbon offset, and you grow your vegetable garden. And if you're going somewhere a long way away, you try and make sure you can arrange it so that you can stay for longer, which is not easy. Since we've been, you know, COVID has submerged large amounts of the world and um, travel hasn't been possible, I still have felt that I haven't done quite enough exploring the world in my life, and although I've been lucky to go to quite a few places, but I'm now not feeling deprived when I think about not being able to, that, you know, that if it's much better for me to never see Paris again, then I'll never see Paris again. Do you have any day-to-day habits that have changed? Eco bulbs, electric cars, short showers. Oh, I haven't got an electric car yet, but I'd love one of those. Um, I shouldn't say it, but less frequent showers for me because I've got this long hair. So you know, you can't do a short shower and actually get a comb through your hair. <laughs> so, yeah. so you know, and I've got my garden and I compost, and with my garden, I try not to disturb the soil too much because. It sequesters more carbon if you don't mess with it. And also the earthworms love it. And also the thrushes and blackbirds do enough disturbing it. You know, they really, you can get them to weed the garden in their search for worms. Elizabeth Knox, best-selling author, creator of Alternative Worlds, veteran placard waver, gardener of the beans. Thank you for joining me on the One Hot Minute podcast. 
Thank you for having me on. So that's it for this time. Thanks for listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Don't forget to also check out the One Hot Minute video series where you can hear Elizabeth Knox tell her 60-second climate change story. There are links on the Stuff homepage and from Play Stuff. If you want to make sure you catch every episode of this podcast, go subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you have a second, give us a quick star rating on Apple Podcasts. Five stars would be great, thank you, as it increases the odds of other listeners finding us. This episode was produced by Adam Dudding and me, Eloise Gibson. It's part of the Forever Project, Stuff's newly launched portfolio of climate change coverage. Thanks to Jack Price, Paul Crompton, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. More information at stuff.co.nz slash one hot minute. See you next time.